0: And it was actually the first time I heard the phrase, the best teachers are warm and demanding. And I remember actually just reflecting on what a powerful framing that was and how that truly captured the best leaders.
1: John Reed Doddick is one of the most fascinating business leaders I've ever met. He's currently the Chief People Officer at AlphaSense and is a recognized change expert working with executives and boards to grow and transform global business through a focus on culture, leadership, talent, and organizational performance. He has been the Chief People Officer of well-established companies like Thomson Reuters, Dun & Bradstreet, and also fast-growing startups like WeWork and AlphaSense. So he's really seen the full life cycle of organizations. John is on the board of my organization, Kip New Jersey and Miami, and over the years I've gone to him repeatedly for guidance on a range of leadership issues where his experience growing companies has provided so many lessons in how we can scale high-performing schools. As I've talked to him about what good leadership is, there were a lot of times I had the thought, you know, that's just another way of describing great teaching. So I thought we'd share some of these lessons for school leaders and business leaders alike. So with that, we'll welcome John. John, you've worked with a lot of business leaders in a lot of
0: different settings. In your view, what are the traits that all the best leaders share? I think I'll start with a degree of authenticity. And at some level, to be a great leader, you have to be yourself. And sometimes I use the phrase, but be yourself in bold and on a stage. But there's not as if there's a, this is the model for a great leader, and you have to fill that model. I think part of it is building that authenticity and then being able to project that In the context of the organization and the business needs and being kind of authentically who you are
1: it strikes me that in teaching that's also a really big deal students see through you right away if you're not being authentic and a lot of first-year teachers really experience that where they try to be some teacher that they saw in a movie or experienced as a child or whatever and they don't just be themselves and let their students see them How have you seen business leaders be bold and on a stage, as you put it?
0: Well, I think a terrific example actually is Miguel McKelvey, who was the co-founder of WeWork. You know, he's a bit more introverted, a bit more reserved. But as WeWork scaled, he got very comfortable being who he was in different contexts and learning how to sort of think about what messages mattered to him, where he wanted to focus his time and attention, and a phrase that he used once to give a whole presentation at a large conference was operationalizing love. And the concept of love and kind of caring and empathy is something that mattered a lot to Miguel. And he got very comfortable talking about that in a business context and as something that mattered in a business context. And that was an example of him really just projecting who he was at a larger scale. And for podcast lovers, his how i built this podcast is a is a fantastic example of who he is and how he talks and how he thinks. So that's that's probably a good example that comes to mind.
1: So one of the key challenges in teaching is the need to balance high expectations and tight classroom management with building strong relationships with students and creating a joyful and even, as you've just put it, love-filled classroom experience. I've heard you talk about this concept in leadership as well, and you might have even pulled some lessons from things you've heard from us at KIPP. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've been a student of leadership and very involved in leadership development for going on 25 years. And perhaps one of the biggest aha moments I had during the course of that was actually at a Kip event in a conversation with a principal. And I was asking the principal, what do you find the best teachers to be like and to present? And it was actually the first time I heard the phrase, the best teachers are warm and demanding. And I remember actually driving home after that event and just reflecting on what a powerful framing that was and how that truly captured the best leaders as well. And there's a dichotomy in there that is hard to get right because People who are inherently warm, it's a little harder to be as demanding. People who are really good at be demanding, it's a little harder to be warm. And I think the best leaders kind of get that balance really, really well.
1: Is this something they learn or are
0: the best leaders just born that way? There's an element of both. And partly what I'm wrestling with, I think, is there's a construct that actually is in Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, where he talks about running really great restaurants and creating really great hospitality experiences and how he approaches hiring. And I think the chapter is called something like hiring for the 51%. And so he says that when he thinks about the 51%, he refers to it as hospitality from the heart. I don't know if you're born with it, but you bring it to his restaurant. The 49% are the skills that you can train. And I think that that sort of construct would apply to leaders in the sense that there are some people who may be wired in a way that they just can't be great leaders. And yet there are some people who are wired in a way that just make them with very little focus or development, great leaders. There's something about kind of who they are and how they engage. You see it even in students in schools, right? Like the people who sort of emerge as, you know, quote unquote, natural leaders. And so I think that there's this sort of band in which leaders are and sort of how much of it is what you bring to it just by virtue of who you are or, or, quote, unquote, how you were born? Although we all believe in the elasticity of the brain and therefore there's a lot to be gained by not just building on what you were born with. Right. So I think it's sort of how much do you need to learn and how much do you bring with it intuitively? And that's the balance. And, and then the reality is, I think, the, if you then said the truly greatest leaders are the ones who are wired in a certain way and bring a sort of natural approach to leadership, and then invest in their own learning and their development and grow so that they really take those strengths and supercharge them. It
1: strikes me also that if you're aware of these tendencies, whatever your tendencies are, whether too warm or too demanding, you need to both learn and then also
0: perhaps add some people around you who complement your tendencies. That is absolutely true. I mean, one of the things that I think is another framing that is good to apply is this notion of You succeed through your strengths and you fail through your derailers, right? You fail through your weaknesses. Those are your derailers. And the reality is if you focus on preventing failure, you are by its nature stunting growth. But if you ignore the things that cause you to fail, then you're also putting a limit on how successful you can be. And depending on the context that you're in as a leader and the available resources, the nature of your team, what the best leaders tend to do is to figure out what are they not good at and how do they get others to handle that or how do they use other ways of solving that rather than saying, I'm going to invest a lot of time in trying to become better at that. Because the reality is, and I won't presume that this applies in a school context, but when I think about kind of leadership, you can spend a massive amount of effort trying to correct your weaknesses. And if you're really good at it, you will rise all the way to the level of average. <laughs> you're, you're not going to get to great. It's your strengths that drive greatness.
1: One of the examples I use sometimes when talking about this with our leaders is Shaquille O'Neal wouldn't do particularly well on a 360 in basketball, perhaps. There are some things he'd be very weak at, but you don't want Shaq practicing three-pointers all day. You want him focusing on getting in the paint scoring, getting rebounds and the things that he's absolutely best in class at the same kind of goes for leadership on this notion of balancing whether it's warm and demanding or autonomy versus control organizations at least in my experience struggle with this not just with students we experience this in the classroom but also in our organization we grew it from one grade level to a whole school to two schools to now 23 schools in three cities and if there's one tension that has persisted and been a huge part of what we've talked about the entire time. It's this tension between who gets to make which decisions, how do we balance autonomy, which just about everybody wants and needs, versus the need for immediate results, in our case, academic outcomes for kids and, and building warm and demanding schools for kids. How does that play out in a business setting? And in particular, how does that maybe change over time as a business goes from startup to scale?
0: There's a really good book that is called The Founder's Mindset that is research that some folks at Bain did. And in the context of sort of hyper growth, what they said is you know, a startup is incredibly successful if they are an insurgent, if they are very creative and they're doing something radically different and, and, and driving value for their clients. And the more insurgent you are and the more successful you are, then the more you need to scale. And the challenge as you scale is you then start experiencing the need to have more standard processes, certain ways of doing things. And in a way, you're taking away the insurgent dimension as you're scaling. And if you get the balance wrong, you end up being a large bureaucracy because you've actually lost your Insurgency as you scale. If you get the balance right, you become an insurgent at scale, and that describes a dynamic in hypergrowth and sort of age and stage as you progress through it. I've worked at a couple of hypergrowth companies, WeWork and now AlphaSense, but I also was involved in large-scale transformations of older, more established companies like Reuters and Dun and Bradstreet, for example. And using Reuters as an example, it was a, it was there the dynamic was we actually had so much autonomy because we were organized geographically. So that would almost be like in a school equivalent, that would be like every school controls whatever it wants to do. We were organized, you know, Germany got to do whatever it wanted to do. Japan got to do whatever it wanted to do. And what we actually recognized was that that is costly, inefficient, and, and in our case at that time, misaligned with how our largest customers were now organizing and acting. They were becoming increasingly global. And you know, the phrase I, I used is we were treating an asset manager in Japan as if they had more in common with an investment banker in Japan than an asset manager in New York. And so we did a big transformation and we actually used what we called the C curve to sort of frame that. So if you think of you know the vertical axis is scale and the horizontal axis is autonomy, you actually want to be enabling autonomy at scale. So you want to be in the sort of upper right quadrant. But it's not an on-off switch. You you literally have to pull autonomy away, build scale, and then re-embed autonomy. So that dynamic of getting the balance between autonomy and scale is a tension that exists whether you're going through hypergrowth or you're dealing with sort of larger organizations. And there's lots of ways that one can kind of dive in and do that. But I think it's a necessary and important tension if you're going to get larger and more effective?
1: We've been through at least two of those stages. We started out with every school doing more or less what they wanted with some guardrails. And then we realized, for instance, that the K through 12 curriculum was too disjointed. Kids were getting some lessons twice, some lessons not at all. So we had to standardize some of those things and then so on for different things as we scaled. I think one question I have is when do you go back to the autonomy stage? When do you know that you've got the right amount or or an excessive amount of centralization or standardization and say, okay, now is a time when we start to release more autonomy.
0: In a way, your aspiration is to be releasing more autonomy. And the C curve I was describing almost makes it sound like it's binary in the sense of we're taking all autonomy away, building scale. So I'm I'm gonna complicate it a little bit, which is you should be trying to enable as much autonomy as you can. And a little, a little bit of that is actually trying to say, what are things that benefit from scale? And they don't need to be different. What is a sort of platform layer where we benefit from doing this once really well, and it applies regardless of the context, and being kind of thoughtful about what those choices are. And that is where you're taking that away. like if if you have a principal, and and I don't know whether this applies, but let's just say it's a baseline reading curriculum. And in a, each school has a different version, and actually they're all just variations on a theme. It may be the case that, Let's take that and do it once really well, right? Like instead of having everyone have to reinvent that wheel. But then there may be dimensions of that, like on top of the platform, where are there opportunities for autonomy, for innovation? Where do you want to be able to adapt to that classroom, those students, that subject matter, et cetera? So it's probably that kind of choice that you're, you're making is where do you not actually need a lot of variability? and and you're you're trying to sort of create this level of performance and how is that an enabler of autonomy
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense and it also in my experience that changes as you add more layers like there are different places where it makes sense to have autonomy depending on the number of layers you have if that makes sense right now we're not just because we're in two states and three cities it's not just one center or not. It's schools, cities, it's regions, and then the larger organization on top of that. And yeah, we all fear those of us who started out as many of us did in big dysfunctional bureaucratic districts have a knee-jerk tendency to want to avoid becoming that and the dysfunction therein. But you can see where that would come from after years and years of this goes wrong, so let's make a rule to make sure it never goes wrong again. Or if we had had a standard process for this, it wouldn't have happened in the first place. And that temptation exists all the time because stuff goes wrong all the time. And then you end up with nothing but rules if you react that way to those instances
0: or or incidents. I guess I want to endorse that and maybe build on it a little bit. Because you're right. In in organizations, you have a similar construct of, oh, here's your headquarters, and then here's your region, and then here's your city, and then down to that level. And and each one is you're, you're sort of trying to get the relevant benefits of scale as you kind of move up that. But your example of the kinds of teachers or administrators that are attracted to a KIP, for example, they may be reacting against the tightly structured bureaucratic world. And it's funny, you actually want those kinds of people while you're scaling. And one of the findings in the Bain book that I was describing earlier was that the companies that get it right, they hire the right kind of scale executives. And the phrase is, they hire insurgents at scale. And so we tried to build that into the kinds of executives we were hiring, and even in in the recruiting process. So there was a, a question I would frequently use when I was hiring leaders into WeWork, which is, tell me a story about working in a larger company and encountering something that you found frustratingly bureaucratic, and what did you do to change it? And drawing also on my learnings with Kip, I use rubrics a lot more now. In the sort of really good answer part of the rubric, was, um, I mean, I'll give you the best answer that, that someone gave where they said, I was in this X company. I thought our approach to performance management sucked. I went to our head of HR and I said, performance management sucks. I think we should do it differently. I'd like to experiment with something. I have this idea. And effectively what he did was he partnered with the head of HR to run a prototype of a different way of doing it and then they scaled that to the rest of the organization, right? To me, that was like the A plus answer. And the F answer was performance management sucked. So I just did it my own way. And I just, I never told anyone in HR, look, there's this phrase, right? Which particularly in the startup world, but maybe you encounter it too. I'd rather beg forgiveness than ask permission.
1: Oh yeah. We were taught that on day one of teaching actually by, by a, by a uh, assistant principal who was oriented that way, he was just like, you got to beg for forgiveness because you're not going to get permission for anything.
0: <laughs> it's a good sentiment, but I will say that when I, when I find it used with me, I will jokingly say, so what you're telling me is you want to sneak around until you get caught.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's a symptom <laughs> well, of a dysfunctional organization. Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably furthers the dysfunction if you operate that way. Speaking of performance management, actually, one of the things that we learned over the years, you know, we used to have these big end of year field trips that students would earn through their behavior, their hard work throughout the year and so on. And it was an incentive to do all those things during the year. But what we found was a student, especially a young student, but, but really at any age was not responsive. On a given day, nine months before that incentive would be realized to that incentive, right? And so it seems that performance management in business is shifting away from sort of this annual goal setting cadence to something a little more immediate and easier to respond to. Is
0: that your experience? Yeah. I mean, some of it is just it's a product of the pace of business now and how fast things move. Right. And some of it is exactly that recognition, right? Like what I like to jokingly refer to as the sort of traditional industrial strength version of performance management is once a year you do kind of a robust 360, you gather all of this feedback, you collect all of the things that went wrong during the course of the year or the things you wanted to comment during the course of the year, you gather it into report and then you sit down for an hour or so with somebody and say, "Here, let me give you all of this," and then and then let me tie it to your annual bonus. And in effect, one of the things you'd be saying is, "Oh, and there was this meeting last March where you did X, Y, or Z, like, right. That's not effective, right? Actually, this is consistent in warm and demanding, in autonomy and scale. You're trying to work these tensions, right, or balance these tensions. I think the best way to think about performance management is there's an element of which is it is ongoing, informal, frequent. There's this concept of of kind of give feedback when performance happens in the context in which performance happens in language appropriate to that context, and that should be happening sort of on an ongoing basis. It, it might be there's a regular one to one that's every couple of weeks or or once a you know once a month or something because it's always helpful to to kind of pause and look back or reflect on, on maybe themes that are just different than that sort of moment. And there are some sort of thematic things that you can deliver. And then I think on an annual basis, and it might be enabling a conversation that's career oriented, looking at longer term. And so I think that actually getting, and, and I'm assuming this actually sort of is very consistent in, in an educational context, it's actually all of those dimensions done well is what contributes to really good performance and growth.
1: This is shifting gears a little bit, but when it comes to scaling an organization back on that topic, one of the things that's hard to do, and we've experienced this in our schools as well, when you have a really good culture, it's kind of hard to define what makes it so good. And it's even harder, in my experience at least, to then scale that to the next school and the next school. And as you grow, know what to hold on to in a culture and what should
0: naturally evolve. You're a culture expert. How do you do this in your companies? How much time do we have? Let me start first (laughs) with, with a quick elevator pitch about culture, right? Like culture matters. And then very often people will cite the famous Peter Drucker saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what he actually means is a misaligned culture each strategy for breakfast. So the key thing about culture is your culture should be in service of your bigger mission, your vision, your strategy. And as that is evolving, you should be thinking about how do we evolve our culture to achieve that? And I often cite these two examples, WeWork, where I was, and BP. So WeWork was founded where the members, as we called them early on, were startups, freelancers, small business. We were a startup. Everything was about being scrappy. And our culture over time continued to celebrate being scrappy. Our business evolved so that well over 50% of our revenues were large-scale enterprises. And when you're serving an enterprise, scrappy equals crappy, right? (laughs) We, We needed to actually evolve our culture to serve enterprises. You, you then take BP as an example, a very large kind of oil production company with you know hundred plus years. Their strategy had a changed to being a more innovative energy culture, and recognizing that they they were sort of committed to dealing with what's known as the dual challenge, you know, solving or addressing the growing demand for energy while trying to drive down emissions, and that requires innovating new sources of energy, but finding ways to make traditional sources of energy cleaner, et cetera, right? And their strategy required innovation, experimentation. Their culture was grounded in how do you prevent the next deep water horizon? Safety, control, hierarchy, tradition. And so those are examples of misaligned cultures as your strategy evolves. So I think one of the challenges is people equate culture with being a great place to work. And the two are important, but adjacent. And I think that there's lots to do about being a great place to work, having great employee experiences, really being an enriching and inspiring environment for people to be at. And that is not necessarily directly related to your business strategy, other than just wanting to be able to attract great people, but focusing on your business strategy and how that evolves and evolving your culture is the the key thing.
1: So in the case either of a WeWork or a BP or an organization like that, how do you then attach your culture to your strategy or or build the culture you want in accordance with your strategy?
0: Yeah, so my own perspective, having led multiple large-scale culture programs is that you have to recognize that fundamentally culture is the output. So you have to articulate the culture you need in light of your business strategy, and then focus on the inputs. And the inputs are a vast array of things. When I was at we WeWork, Miguel and I actually kind of collaborated on this. We developed something we called the culture operating system. And we grouped the eight primary drivers of culture or shapers of culture into things like purpose, leadership, talent, agility, citizenship, connection, platform, like those sorts of things. And there are hundreds of things that fit within that system and set of subsystems. Done really well, you are approaching each of those choices with cultural intent. And how do we design this piece to serve that dimension of culture? And and that's really the way you, you evolve culture over time is bringing that intentionality to all of the choices that shape the output which is the culture that you're you're defining. And do
1: you reset
0: that every time you set a new strategy then? Well, I think a reset makes it sound kind of jarring and episodic. I think in some ways you are always evolving and so you should be asking yourself in what ways does our culture continue to be in service of of our strategy as as it's evolving. And sometimes you can find in businesses that there's a pretty fundamental shift. The examples of BP and WeWork apply. That's a pretty major shift in strategy. So you should be reorienting your culture and operating it to be in service of, of your strategy. If I think about KIP, for example, your ultimate mission and the kind of vision that you set, that may have not changed materially over time, but your context changed is, you know, you had more schools. You had additional cities. You layered on Kip through college, and then even that started to evolve to recognize ah, it's a broader perspective than that than just college. It's sort of you know the world of work and and equipping people. You know, so those would be strategic shifts that would need to make you step back and say. What are the dimensions in our culture that need to evolve to make sure we can add on to our culture or build on our culture in service of those strategic changes and evolution?
1: As I reflect, we definitely have gone through some cultural shifts and had to be intentional about them, especially on the dimension that you're talking about. In the beginning, it was sort of this naive 100% of kids are going to go to college. And then, you know, we started with middle schools and then we got to high school and we realized, one, not every kid wants to go to college. Two, it's not the right path for every single child. And so we needed to evolve the way we talked about that with our people so that they would not just be pushing everybody in that direction and that we would still, for the majority of kids for whom college is the best option, we absolutely push and support as much as we possibly can. But we give an equal level of support now to the kids for whom that is not the case. And that has indeed required a cultural shift, some of which we realized after we decided we need to make the shift, some of which we anticipated. But either way, it did require that shift.
0: When one thinks about, okay, we've got a strategic shift, and therefore, how do we evolve our, our culture to do that? And the notion of the culture operating system is getting you to sort of, revisit the things that that influence your culture right and i i often give one component of the culture operating system we refer to as platform right which is The sort of systems, processes, tools, policies, like looking at all the kind of fairly micro things that shape the employee experience. And and the example I give at my time at Dun & Bradstreet, for example, is we were really looking to modernize the culture. The business had evolved and we had developed a new mission that was articulated as to grow the most valuable relationships in business by uncovering truth and meaning from data. And relationships was a sort of core component. When you then look at a micro policy, which was the bereavement policy, in what circumstances are you entitled to take a day off with pay from work in order to attend a funeral? Our policy defined which relationships you could effectively, if an aunt or an uncle died, you could. If a cousin died, you couldn't, right? And we changed that policy to say relationships matter to us if a relationship matters to you you can take a day off to honor someone in their death. I give that as an example and and then come back to the college example. One of the things that I found really, I mean, kind of cool when I was just starting to get to know Kip more was you didn't refer to it as like first grade or kindergarten. It was like the year of like college graduation and teachers would put their, you know, pennants from their schools. Like question for you is like, as you were thinking of the shift, have you had to evolve that symbolism, the other things that are constantly reinforcing what matters most to students? Because that's some of the ways you evolve culture.
1: Yeah, we definitely have. And, and now not all of our classrooms are named after colleges, though many of them still are. We want to send both messages, basically. We've had to, or not had to, but we've brought in people to speak about careers that don't require a college, but But that some of our students might be interested in and we've certainly had to broaden our scope in running an organization complexity, especially at scale, it makes things harder. Right. And so one of the one of the things that has done is made our job harder, but it's the right shift to make. It's what's best for our kids. But it is, that's another tension, right? Like the tension between complexity and simplicity. So like the bereavement policy, as an example, in the new policy, you are honoring the human, the way humans actually work, right? Some people, their aunt or uncle raised them and is absolutely as important to them as anybody else in their life. For other people, it's the grandmother or the or the parents, obviously, or their siblings. But it's hard to operationalize even that in some ways at scale because there's always a fear that somebody's gonna take too many days or anything like that. And, and it strikes me that ultimately what you wanna build is a trusting environment where people know this is what our mission is. And our mission is has expanded now to send kids, not just to college, but off into careers where they are living, the life that they choose to their sort of maximum ability to do so, and that sometimes involves college and sometimes doesn't, and building a culture around that has become extremely critical, which is a little bit harder than building a culture that is just about going to college, as hard as that was in the first place, if that makes sense.
0: I mean, it's it's funny, this is a theme, Ryan, from our conversation is thoughtfully balancing tension. Because I think simplicity and, and, and complexity, right, is, is a tension. And many quotes are attributed to Einstein. I don't know whether uh, he, he said all of them or any of them. But, uh, you know, I think there's a quote, you know, as simple as possible, as complex as necessary. There's another phrase that I love, which is getting to the simplicity on the other side of complexity. But one does want to manage those, those tensions in order to kind of address these things. And part of the tension in that is you can't create rules for everything. And I referenced Miguel McKelvey, uh, co-founder of of WeWork earlier, and and just a quick story to try to illustrate, you know, how you you think about that. He was speaking at an event, which was a a gathering of chief HR officers. And one of the questions he was asked was, as WeWork scales, isn't the reality that it's going to need to become more like a a, a normal organization, more controls, more bureaucracy and, and that kind of thing. And and, and he, he acknowledged that as you grow, you need to, to do more of that. But he then made this really interesting observation and he explained that, that you know, he's, he's trained as an architect and he's, you know, done some work in urban design. And he said that cities that have roundabouts have much more efficient flow of traffic than cities that have stoplights. And he said, in many ways, traditional organizations are stoplight organizations they are rule based they are policy based they are trying to control for everything that could happen whereas organizations of the future need to be roundabout based you have some guidelines as you encounter the roundabout if there's no traffic you just go if there's a lot of traffic you know you enter at this point and you you know and i wish i could say i know how to operationalize that metaphor i i i think we should always be in pursuit of operationalizing that metaphor because i think it really helps to address that notion of simplicity and complexity and rules versus guidelines and good luck with that in a school system right <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard anywhere you do it i'm sure you mentioning miguel and and other business leaders along the way reminds me of and and all these very difficult decisions that impact in their case thousands of employees And then all the the setbacks, whether it's at WeWork or anywhere, certainly we've had some along the way that an entrepreneur will run into. And we, we recently interviewed somebody named Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who wrote this book called The Upside of Stress, which is a great book. And she talks about how stress can either be bad for you, as everybody expects it is, or it can actually be productive and good for you if the way you think about stress is all these setbacks make me better the next time that I do this thing or, or or try to grow the organization or whatever it is. And, the best entrepreneurs I've met in my life take exactly that mindset. Have you seen that in your world? Like you've worked with far more of these folks than I have. I'm curious what you've seen or or what even what mindset you take and how you manage the stress of rapid growth, the setbacks that come from that and everything else that goes with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think certainly the best entrepreneurs, because they are creating something that didn't exist before and there's a massive amount of experimentation in that and by its nature, experimentation will will involve failures, stuff, things that don't work, and and so that notion of what do we learn, how do we adapt quickly, right? And 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 you know, it really is just test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, right? But even not in the entrepreneurial context or the hyper growth context, great leaders learn as much from what are sometimes referred to as cauldron experiences, like going through really challenging, difficult times, and. Look, one of the greatest leaders I've ever had the, the privilege of working with is Tom Glosser. And Tom was the CEO of Reuters and then CEO of Thomson Reuters. And, and today he's the lead director for Morgan Stanley. He's on the board of Merck. He's on the board of Publicis. So he's a, a major business figure. And he was the youngest CEO in the history of Reuters and took over in 2001 and took over just at the time. You know, the, the saying might be he sort of caught the falling knife. Our business was running into major, major issues. And uh, in in a sort of one year period, our stock price dropped from 16 pounds a share to 96 pence. And Tom then had to engineer a radical transformation of Reuters and took our employee base from sort of 22,000 down to 13 at one point, 70% turnover in his senior leaders, sort of the top 100, 150. So that was a horrendous period. And Tom is one of the most caring, empathetic, sort of balanced, motivating people you'll come across like a true multiplier. And look, he was probably always gonna be a good leader. I think going through that made him a truly great leader. And so that's an example where it's unrelated to being in a a startup that's transforming a large, you know, 150 year old company.
1: It strikes me that people who respond that well to that hard of a situation must be doing something to manage their energy and their stress you've shared with me in the past some ways that you do that or that you have people in your organization do that can you share some of that as well
0: there's a method if you would there's a consulting firm called tignum t i g n u m and they have really developed over the years this way of helping leaders have sustainable high performance and what they what they kind of do is they help you develop habits of mindset nutrition Movement, recovery, and in some ways, I mean, this is my way of describing it rather than theirs. I hope it does justice to uh, to Scott Pelton and the, the the great thinkers there. But I always say, like, the way we typically manage stress on a day to day level is, I sleep, I burn down. I sleep, I burn down. You know, and what they try to do is to say, if you have these habits during the course of the day, how you're thinking about. You know, your mindset and mental preparation for events and different meetings, how, you know, the kinds of foods you're eating, how you're hydrating, how you're taking mini breaks, how you're doing, you know, there's a whole series of practices you can adapt. You should be as energetic at 8 p.m. as you were at 8 a.m. And the best leaders actually really do have this ability to sort of sustain their energy and they've got different habits and practices that they do. And one of the reasons that's so critical is because the leader's energy is contagious and the leader, you know, leader's energy is going to sort of shape the rest of the organization and your ability to make thoughtful judgments on an ongoing basis is impacted by the extent to which you can focus at that time that you bring energy to that. So I I think it's critical that you, you do that. And that's not just leaders. That applies to students. That applies to teachers.
1: I was going to say, yeah, with the teacher as the leader of the classroom and, and with students in school, Oftentimes sitting in desks for a huge amount of the day, having those breaks and having that time to recharge so that the last period of the day they learn just as much as they do in the first is a real challenge, but it's absolutely critical.
0: In the Tignum program, they you know they they structure these offsites so that you integrate into leadership development. In the Tignum program, there's a point at which they want to illustrate the role that nutrition plays in impacting mood, productivity, et cetera. And they actually show a video of Jamie Oliver, who in the UK went in and helped reimagine the school lunch program in schools. And they tracked the students' ability to concentrate, the extent to which they, they used inhalers, their, like all these other things. And just sort of changing the lunchtime menu and you know, was materially impacting outcomes in the school. Right, like just one one kind of intervention. So I think a really a really powerful shaper
1: that really is. And we could probably do a whole podcast on school lunch and and the, and the problems <laughs> that that exist in our in, in our country on that front. Um, John, as always, whenever I talk to you, I walk away with pages of notes. Multiple books that I now have to read, <laughs> and um, a lot of lessons for running an organization. So thank you for sharing them today with me and with our audience. and where can people find you
0: if they want to learn more? Well, I uh, am happily living in manhattan. i'm uh, I'm on linkedin. i'm I'm happy to have people kind of reach out and explore. I'm passionate about these topics. I've loved the affiliation with Kip and you and your leaders, Ryan. It's seeing high quality leadership development and organizational development and the impact it can have through the lens of the work that you all do has been a a real joy for me.
1: Well, thank you for that. And John Reed Doddick, the chief people officer at AlphaSense. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.